Hello there, welcome to the No Longer Be Children podcast. I'm your host, Josiah Meyer, and we are in pursuit of a mature and stable Christian worldview. In this podcast, we're going to ask the question, is it possible to say that um, one worldview is better than another? And the reason that I'm asking this question is because in the next podcast, I'm going to talk about pre-modernity, modernity, and post-modernity. And I'm going to make the thesis, the, the um, statement, that... Um, Western thought peaked or climaxed in modern or in pre-modern thought, and that modernity was on the way down, and post-modernity is is sliding down further. I would draw an arc, or an arc of. Um, I have a podcast that I haven't published yet called the Arc of World Thought, and I. It's my belief that we had some of the best thinking in the West uh, from about the 13th century on up to about the 16th, 17th century. And from there, it's all been downhill. Um, and so I, I see world history and world thought as some thoughts are better than others, some worldviews are better than others, some worldviews are worse than others. And so um, there's three ways that uh, I can say that a, a worldview is better than a different worldview. Um, the first question is, is it... Is it true? And as we're going to see, um, this is going to be an important question, but it's difficult to maintain at this point because we haven't established what truth is yet in our point in the investigation. So I'm going to strike that from the record. Uh, That is an important thing to look at. Is it true objectively? Uh, But we'll get there later. Secondly, um, is it helpful? And is it helpful? A, does a worldview um, enable a helpful view of ethics? Is it able? Are you able to create a good ethical system from a worldview? And is it helpful to science? Are you able to create a good scientific system in a worldview? Um, so this is the main thing we're going to look at. Is it helpful in ethics? Is it helpful in science? And I would say that some worldviews are better than others, and um, the pre-modern system is the best way uh, to create and pursue both ethics and science, and in so doing to create a society together. Now, there will be people that will oppose this right off the bat and say, you can't say that one worldview is better than another. And to a certain extent, I would certainly agree with the sentiment of that, the idea of that, because I think the idea at the root of that is you can't walk into a room and just say, everybody in this room is stupid, I'm smart. Everybody in here is wrong, I'm right. Um, You need to validate, you need to value, you need to listen to people. Um, you need to, and you can't, um, you, you can't just, um, just shout your views and expect people to listen to you. Uh, and as we looked at in 1 Peter 3.15, we need to, um, be ready with an answer when people ask us what we believe, why we believe it, uh, but with gentleness and respect. And the word respect means fear or a holy reverence. We need to hold people's stories and, and their views and, and their beliefs and um, just them as being made in the image of God. It's it's a sacred thing to discuss our beliefs together. We need to hold people in great regard. Um, but if we're overly uh, politically correct on these issues, we can't pursue truth anymore. It handicaps us. Uh, extreme political correctness handicaps us in our pursuit of truth. We can never say that a view is better or worse than another view. We can never say um, 
that something is more or less helpful. We're just kind of stuck in this political correctness. Well, you think this, I think this, we all love each other, let's go home and uh, let's all sing Kubaya and then go home. Um, also, so that's one objection is that we can't make any progress um, in our thoughts. And that's important because our worldview is the most foundational, most important thing is we, if we want to advance as a society or even keep the ground that we have, that we have fought for, um, we need to be able to evaluate which worldviews are better than others because clearly some worldviews are less helpful than others. And um, when a worldview goes bad, everything goes bad. That's the foundation of it. Secondly, um, it's, it's not... Okay, so it's, it's, it's difficult because we can't make progress. But secondly, why? It, it doesn't make sense that only on this issue we're not critical. On all the other issues, um, whether that's science, whether that's mathematics, whether that's bi biology, whether that's um, cartology or, or astrophysics, whatever, uh, we expect people to put out their beliefs and then to distance themselves from them it, to a certain extent to say, this is what I believe, um, but if you prove me wrong, then thank you. Um, you're advancing knowledge if you prove me wrong. Uh, and this is a good scientific, um, this, this is how we should be. So we put our views out there and we, in, into the marketplace of ideas, so to speak, and we expect people to engage with them, to think about them, and if we're wrong, to prove us wrong with good, um, good reasons and good defenses. But in religion, uh, we feel as though this is a different category and we don't want to do this. But I would say that we should do this. We should put our religions out there and say, I believe my religion is right for these reasons. If you don't agree with me, then prove me wrong. Um, and I don't see any reason why we shouldn't do that uh, with our religions, with our worldviews, with the foundational ideas that we have. Um, the elephant in the room here really is the imperial age. Uh, the time in the 17, 1800s, well, 16 up to 18 into the 1900s, um, when the Western society marched all over the world, um, England, France, Portugal, Germany, uh, who am I missing? Holland. Um, all the nations that had enough wealth to build ships and then to go and conquer people uh, that they had discovered in uh, North South America, in India, in in, in Asia, um, and to suck resources out of those places and also to um, force their ideology on, on uh, the host cultures. And in our day and age, we become very conscious of this and very repentant of this, and we should be very repentant of this. Uh, what we did was wrong. What our society did was wrong. Um, because... Uh, it, it's always wrong to force a worldview or religion on other people. Um, if it's better, then it will flourish naturally. Um, but I would argue that we spend so much time repenting of the sins of our fathers that we've stopped asking the question, but were, was our worldview the better one anyways? Um, that's a very politically incorrect question to ask because of the, the pain and the sin of of the imperial era, um, but I would argue that we need to we need to get past that to some extent. Um, we need to um, we still need to ask the question: 
what is the best worldview for creating the best society. Um, we can't we can't just accept a worldview or just say, well, you know, I I'm going to distance myself from Western thought and the Western worldview because it was used badly. Um, we need to, um, in this context, we need to ask what is the best worldview. Uh, and and uh, although terrible things were done in the name of modernity and of Westernism, um, Ravi Zacharias says you can't um, you can't critique a religion by its abuses in the same as view of a worldview system. So the first way I said that I'm not going to look at whether these worldviews are true objectively at this point. Uh, that will be a much longer and um, more involved study. But I want to ask the question, is a worldview helpful specifically in creating an ethical system and also creating a scientific system? Objective morality. Um, does objective morality exist? Uh, most people would say that they know, they have a sense of what is right and wrong, uh, at least on some basic big issues, such as, is it right or wrong um, to torture a child just for the fun of it? Pretty much no matter where you would go in the world, no matter what culture you're in, everybody would agree that it's wrong to torture a child just for the fun of it. Uh, and even if there's some extreme culture that quote-unquote tortures a child, perhaps in a religious rite, perhaps in a rite of passage, creates a lot of pain. There's some reason for that. It's not just for fun. Um, so torturing a, a child is wrong, objectively, whether anybody agrees with it or not. And in this context, what I mean, what I mean by objective is whether anybody agrees with it or not. Um, what the Nazis did was wrong. Even if they had conquered the whole world and everybody then agreed with them, somehow through mind control or something, what they did still would have been wrong. It would have been objectively wrong. So that's an objective, um, uh, that there are objective moral values and duties. Uh, things are morally wrong objectively, and we have moral duties uh, that are objective. Um, we would all agree, probably, that it is right to nurture and protect and care for your own children, your own offspring. It would be wrong to have a child and then just leave and not care for them, or to expose them to the elements and just let them die. Um, there may be places, times, when people have done this, maybe even have thought it was the right decision, but there were extenuating circumstances uh, that would push them to do this. Um, and when people do, you know, neglect their own children, there's a sense with which they know that what they did was wrong. So we have this moral sense within us that, uh, that Paul talks about in Romans uh, 2 and 3. But um, in a situation where you're confronted with, um, I want this, um, I'm afraid of this, um, there's other pressures, societal pressures, whatever, it's always possible to not do what you think is right or just to become very confused about what is right and wrong, which is why we need to be able to create a moral system uh, to be able to have good laws and to be able to have good um, societal pressures to say, um, well, good laws, it's, you know, rape is, is a crime, murder is a crime, um, child abuse is a crime, child molestation is a crime. We need to have good laws in place, and we need to have good societal 
pressures in place to say you need to provide for your kids, you need to work, you need to uh, provide, you need to uh, you know be honest in society, things like that. In order to have a good moral system like that, um, we need to have a good anchor point for morality. If we don't have a good anchor point, then these these moral values, this this system starts to fall apart. Because people say, well, that's your perspective, but I have my own perspective. Nobody can tell me what to do because there's no, there's no absolute right and wrong. And our society has basically embraced this idea that there's no absolute right and wrong. And we have joyfully, even gleefully accepted it. Usually because when we, when we hear the phrase, there's no absolute right and wrong, uh, I can do whatever I want, everybody can make up their own morality, our minds jump right away to sex. And um, we think, well, I don't have to wait for marriage, I can have sex before marriage, I can look at porn, I can have sex with multiple people, do whatever I want. And um, if I can offer a anecdotal, personal um, observation, it seems as though this, these sorts of ideas are most popular in colleges and universities when um, people are single, people are, are experimenting sexually. But later in life, um, as we're starting to, to grow up, get a little bit more responsible, thinking about people other than just ourselves, um, thinking about our own kids that come along eventually, and thinking about how to create a society that's, that's workable, that, that cares for the weak, that cares for uh, the vulnerable, we start to say, well, hold on a second, we need to have a good ethical system where right is right, wrong is wrong, and the weak are protected. And where the rubber meets the road for a lot of guys is when their teenage daughter gets into, into dating time, uh, you know, into whatever, the age where they date normally, all of a sudden they say, well, hold on a second. It was fun for me to say that um, nobody makes any rules for me. I can date who I want uh, and then switch partners and date somebody else just for the fun of it. But now that I'm looking at my beautiful little daughter, I don't want her to get hurt. I don't want her to be used by somebody else. Um, there ought to be a right and a wrong. And in our, because in our society there is no right and wrong that is objective, that is um, that you can appeal to, that you can say this is wrong in the sight of God, or this is wrong according to some, you know, it's bad karma or something like that. We don't have any sort of a system. And so um, when objective morality doesn't exist, might makes right. And this is the big idea of this section here. If there's no objective moral values and duties, then might makes right. The only way to assert your opinion is just by being stronger than somebody else in one way or another, which is why a lot of guys in that situation will either joke or about or really get out a shotgun or joke about getting a shotgun or try to be more macho than the guys dating their, dating their daughter to say, hey, you better treat her right or else I'm going to beat you up. If there is no um, objective morality, then might makes right. If there is a good moral system, it's possible to tell the king that he has sinned. In the Old Testament, uh, David, uh, the great, uh, the great king, the the father of of the the Davidic king, uh, the line of kings, that eventually Jesus was born, the son of David, um, the man after God's own heart. At the height of his power, at the height of his um, his worship of God, etc., he messed up royally. He uh, committed adultery and murder. 
to cover it up. And uh, he was the king. And so who could speak to him? Well, Nathan the prophet came to him and said, You have sinned. You are the man. And because David recognized that there was a moral law above him, he said, Yes, I have sinned. I have done wrong. And he repented and he humbled himself and he submitted to the law of God. Now, in a lot of societies throughout history, the king is the law. In fact, there's a name for this. I'm going to look up for it, for this. I'll look that up for my actual class, which will be coming out on my uh, podcast, which is Josiah Meyer-Sermons. I'm going to be teaching on this soon, in a few weeks, so you can look for that. Um... If the king makes the law, then you can never tell the king that he has sinned because what he does and what he says defines what is sin and what is not sin. And this leads to um, brutality. It leads to distortions in law. It leads to all the things that we as a society... I mean, I just took a course on ancient history, and I mean, most of it is really bad news about the kings and the bad things that they did um, for their own greed and... Um, in their own desires, the ability to, to put a moral law above the king and a moral law that everybody has access to, that everybody understands, it's, it's equal for everybody, is a huge, huge development that we have had in the West. Um, and I'm going to argue that with post-modernity, that's being broken down and we're, reducing, we're being reduced back to a system where might makes right again. And that helps to explain why the, 19th, why the 20th century was the bloodiest century in human history, even though we have all these advances of civilization. Uh, we, have, we no longer have a worldview where um, there's objective moral values and there's an objective system of morality. So that's one way that we can, we can um, critique a worldview. Is it able to create um, a moral system or not? And the second way we can critique a system is, is it able to create science or not. Um, science is a very, um, it's a word that means everything, therefore it means nothing. So the section for science will be a lot quicker and um, probably easier to agree with. In order for science to progress, uh, or even to begin, we need to have certain premises. And uh, I'm going to have the real list. Off the top of my head, I think what these premises are. I'm going to have the real list for the class that I'll teach soon. Um, but I believe the, the premises are something like uh, the world must be objective, knowable, separate from us, and real. If the world is real and not illusory, as it says in Buddhism, if it's separate from us, not attached to us, as it says again in Buddhism and some Hindu systems, if it's knowable um, and not unknowable, as... Um, a lot of worldviews in the world would say, if it's objective, and most worldviews in the system, in the in the world and throughout world history would say that the world is not objective because there's a number of gods out there. They all affect nature in various ways. Nature is essentially unpredictable. Therefore, it's not objective, uh, and and there is no possibility of having an objective way of studying the world. Um, but if the world is objective knowable, separate from us, and real, then we have a foundation for beginning the scientific process. And as we're going to explain, 
uh, science began when uh, Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle thought of a god that uh, single god, monotheistic system, that created the world. And so because a single god created the world with intelligence, with power, uh, with precision, the world was knowable. It was separate from us, separate from God as well, and it was real, and it was possible to create objective truth statements about the world. And so science was able to begin. Um, the natural sciences, I should say, were able to begin. Uh, natural sciences such as um, science, or uh, such as chemistry, such as um, uh, biology, such as uh, physics, such as um, anatomy. I'm going to have a list here for my next class. The natural sciences then feed up into the applied sciences. How are we going to apply what we've learned? How are we going to systemize uh, it? And uh, so we have things like med medicine, things like physics. And then the applied sciences then translate into technology. So then we have architecture, we have war machines, we have food production, we have comfort and entertainment, we have transportation, etc. We have, in fact, all the things that science gives us. All this whole system is based on the premises that come from a worldview, that the world is objective, knowable, separate from us, and real. Um, and some worldviews come closer to providing good foundation than others. Uh, and we're going to see that throughout our examination of pre-modern, modern, and post-modern. And I'm going to... And so I'm going to argue in the next podcast that all the great um, advances, both in ethics and in science, basically come from um, the Greek system that then became rescued in a way by the Christian uh, um, addition to that. So we could talk about Platonic Christianism or Christian Platonism. Um, this is what's responsible for the progress in the West, and the pre-modern system, I think, is what's responsible for our great advances in ethics, as well as our advances, the whole scientific revolution, um, the, the industrial revolution, etc., all the things that, from toasters to spaceships that we love so much, is all um, because of this worldview, and that atheism is the worst worldview, and I'll explain why that is, but uh, on atheism, it's basically um, predicating that there's nothing out there, and that chaos and randomness is the result, is the cause of everything. And on this theory, uh, this is um, this is a very poor foundation, both for, especially for ethics, but also for science. Um, and we'll talk about that, that um, if atheism had its way, it would, um, well, here's my list here. Atheism is one of the worst models because it has contributed um, virtually nothing, either to science or to ethics. Throughout history, all the major ethicists and scientists were either deists or Christians or very, very few, if any, until before like the last hundred years, were, um, were atheists. It actually opposes the foundations of both ethics and science. Uh, the foundational idea is that there's a God that will judge in ethics. The foundational idea is that the world is objective, knowable, separate from us, and real. Don't really make sense on atheism. And it continues to function. Yes, atheists can, can 
build toaster ovens and spaceships and create ethical systems, but only insofar as they do not reflect overly on the fact that neither makes sense on atheism. So we'll talk more about that in the next uh, podcast. Right now I've got to go, but I hope that this material has been helpful to you. Have a good day. Okay, I left. I came back. Uh, a couple days later, I want to add a few important clarifications to the material that I shared. Um, the first clarification is that in in worldviews that don't have a fixed point of reference, that don't have a way of creating objectivity either in morality or in uh, science, it's it's still possible to to acquire wisdom, uh, even if what we might call knowledge <clears throat> is more difficult. And so if you hang around the Christian scene, uh, often this division between knowledge and wisdom comes up. It kind of exists in culture. Haven't really found it in the Greek language. If, if you have, then help me out with it. Um, in, in Greek and in Hebrew, it seems like there isn't this division. At least it's not... Um, it's not delineated in any Bible passage the way that we use it in our Christian culture. Um, but it is helpful um, to talk about, look, uh, you can graduate college and, and think you have all the answers because you spent seven years studying, well, you spent you know, grade school and high school and then seven years post-secondary studying a topic. Uh, but you get to the field, I mean, you, you hit the real world, and um, there's wisdom that you need to learn as you experience the world. Um, somebody said it's knowledge to know that a tomato is a vegetable, but it takes wisdom to know not to put it into a fruit salad. Um, so there's that difference between knowledge and wisdom. And when I'm talking about science, I'm talking about the accumulation of knowledge, things that we know about the world that enable science, that enable technology, that enable um, all the advances that we have. But there's many societies in the world that aren't able to do that, and from, from where they're going, yes, they can import science, but they, it would never grow organically in their soil because of their worldview. Um, but they're still able to have wisdom. They're still able to know, practically speaking, how to live their lives, how to have a rich and a, you know, a good experience in life. Um, and so I, I want to quickly uh, qualify what I've said to say, yes, but that you know, many like Native North American culture or Indian culture, like uh, East Indian culture, African cultures, often they're more wise than we are um, in how they do family, in how they raise their kids, in how they balance uh, work, life, uh, in how they eat, and how they, you know, how they live their lives is often more wise. So I, I do want to hasten to say um, that Western culture, with its science and technology, is not the only one that has something to teach the rest of the world. The rest of the world has a lot to teach us. And I think, especially when it comes to sexuality, um, the West has really lost their way. And uh, the rest of the world does family better than we do and raises kids better than we do. And we have a lot to learn. Also, um, in cultures that don't have a fixed point of reference and don't have objectivity, it's possible to preserve knowledge and wisdom. Um, it... And the way that knowledge is often preserved and wisdom is often preserved, um, things that they, they learn about the world and, and truth about how to live a better life, is often through stories or through religion. Um, this, this becomes the way to do things, otherwise the gods will get angry at us or something like that. Um, so it's possible to preserve knowledge to a certain point in these cultures. And I don't want to say that like knowledge is completely impossible. 
uh, I hope what's clear is that what's what's really difficult is creating this large meta narrative or the big picture story without a fixed point of reference. Um, but certainly cultures have preserved, um, for example, recipes for um, healing drugs have been preserved over the years or um, wisdom about which plants are bad to eat or how to do gardening or how to build stuff. Um, these sorts of knowledge have been preserved through the years and uh, society has you know, gradually evolved as more and more things have been discovered and preserved through the years through the, the use of the invention of writing. Um, so I don't want to like overstate my case that only in the West and only in um, in monotheistic systems do we have real knowledge. No, certainly there is knowledge and it can be preserved. Um, a thought that just occurs to me is that um, it seems as though, you know, I mentioned the way that it's preserved is often through rote memory, like you memorize this or the, the religion says this and you don't change. Um, it seems to me that until you have an objective point of view and a fixed point of reference, it's really hard to have critical evaluation of what you heard from your from your ancestors. Uh, and you have this in a lot of cultures. The ancestors said this, you don't mess with it. Uh, and it was so throughout the Middle Ages as well, uh, and in the West. But when you have a fixed point of reference, when there is a God, He has spoken, the world makes sense, then you have a foundation for critical thought to say, well, okay, the Father said this, but I've got, you know, a magnifying glass in one hand and a Bible in the other. I can go explore God's world and I might come to a better conclusion, which is why the Reformed Church is reformed and reforming, always every generation, you know, looking for a better way to read scriptures, looking for a better way to read, read nature uh, and to understand God and his creation. So it seems to me that when you have an objective point of view, um, you would think, and, and the stereotype is, well, Christians, they talk about absolute truth and they just want to control our minds and, and sh tell us to shut up and this is what you need to think. It's actually not at all the case. Um, well, I mean, it can be. It depends if what, what sort of a church culture you're in um, and if you have insecure people leading it. Um, but my experience has been, uh, from a young age, being handed a Bible and saying, read it and... Um, come to your own conclusions about it, and uh, it's very much free thought, it's very much personal investigation, uh, which is possible if there's objectivity. If there isn't objectivity, then it's just, hey, we don't know why this works, but the ancestors found out that it works, don't mess with it, and, uh, and, and pass it on to your, your kids. I also want to, um, to clarify that although... Um, in the West, the way that we have found to create ethical systems is through objectivity and talking about one God that exists and then moving downwards from there, talking about ethical systems, talking about consequ eternal consequences and rewards, talking about absolute rightness, absolute wrongness. Uh, all the way from Aristotle to modern times, this is how we have tended to do things and it has worked for us. Uh, that's not to say that other religious systems don't have ways of creating moral uh, systems and maybe I overstated that at different parts in this podcast, but I didn't mean to. Um, certainly, um, animistic cultures, quote unquote, um, th cultures like the Native North Americans, they had ethical systems and they had ways of of teaching their kids ethics. Um, and even you know, 
even though they were, they were often at war with other tribes, there was a certain ethical way that you treated other people in nature and things like that. And they had reasons for, for teaching that. Uh, that didn't come out necessarily of an objective system, such as I'm describing. Um, as well, obviously, the Indian system, Hinduism and Buddhism, um, is another way of creating um, an ethical system, just talking about karma, and what you do will come back to you in the next life. Um, so, and, and, you know, there's pros and cons to all these. If we were talking about, if we were talking at length about ethics, we could perhaps evaluate them and, and see which one is best. But at this point, I just want to say there, there are other ways to create ethical systems. Um, it just so happens that, uh, in the West, we have found that objectivity has been, um, probably the best way to create an ethical system. And we have certainly seen the best fruit coming out, the best fruit in ethical development has come out of the West, talking about, you know, equality of the genders, um, talking about, you know, the abolition of slavery, talking about, you know, equality in the classes and democracy. Um, Those are huge innovations, Uh, some of them very old by now, but still young, considering world history, um, that have all come out of a monotheistic system, if we roll... Platonism and, and Greek thought into monotheism, which I would. All right, so I think that that more or less wraps up this podcast. Let's in the next podcast talk about pre-modernity, modernity, and post-modernity. And Lord, I just pray that you'd bless this material and that you would continue to give us clarity of thought and openness of heart to um, to understand what we believe and to understand what people around us believe. In Jesus' name, Amen.